0: Hey, we're in Exodus chapter 33 today and 34. We're going to wrap up there. Uh, and so if you're with us, if you are tracking with us, um, you will uh, appreciate the uh, YouVersion app, the uh, Church Center app. And um, that's going to give you a lot of passages today as we kind of go through on some references. You're going to want to uh, look through that and just uh, kind of have that available through the week. You know, we push you to look and see uh, for yourself what Scripture says about some things uh, rather than just listen to what we have to say. And so we encourage you to look through Scripture and and search it because the Lord is going to speak to you in it and through it. Uh, I heard a really interesting uh, interview a couple weeks back. To be honest, I couldn't tell you who it was from uh, or, or the purpose of it, uh, except that the, the, the guy behind the mic was interviewing two people who seemed to be very discontent in life for one reason or another. And so he asked the question, and he said, if I gave you $1 million for free, you just got to take it today, uh, no questions asked, would that make you happy? And so, of course, they both said, yeah, yeah. who would not want $1 million, right? And so he said, let's make it ten. Uh, Let's make it $10 million, and the only stipulation is that, would that make you happy? He says, yeah, of course, that would make us happy. He goes, okay, I'm going to put one stipulation on that. Uh, You wouldn't wake up tomorrow. Would you take it? Well, Well, no, of course not. No. He said, so what you're saying is, really, what you're saying is that the joy of waking up tomorrow is worth more to you than $10 million. And if there was like this moment of silence, which you're probably all thinking right now, in, the, in that, man, that, that gift of life tomorrow, today, is extremely valuable. And often, we overlook it. It's the thing that's right in front of our face, and yet we turn and look for all different kinds of things that seem to make us happy or more happy. Or we look at other things to say, that's what I really want. In today's passage, Moses really had this incredible opportunity. He had this face-to-face interaction with God, and he had this ability to really ask God for anything. He had the ear of God, and he didn't look for other things. Instead, he pushed in, and he said, I already have what I want and what I need, your presence. I just want more of it. And I wonder if we look at the passage today, if we could find ourselves in the place of Moses where the glory of God is revealed in such a way that, that literally it, it overshadows everything else in life. If you remember, uh, Israel is a little bit of a jam. God brought them out of Egypt to fulfill a promise to Abraham, for his descendants would enter the land that they would call their own. It's going to flow with milk and honey. All of the things that He's promised, and they've entered into this conditional covenant with God. It means that God has said, and He has promised certain things if they do certain things, and if they obey, uh, He gave them the terms of the covenant, and also they all said in unison, as if they sang a song, "We will do it. Everything." That the Lord has asked we will obey of course they didn't they defiled him they worshiped a graven image they forged a treasure that God forged from a treasure that God had provided for Israel as they left Egypt because of God's promise to Abraham was unconditional he's going to send Israel anyway into this promised land he was just going to withhold his presence So he cannot be in the presence of sin. And this is where we pick up today. And Moses uh, is, is in front of God and he gives this request. And he says this in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. And then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up these people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. So Moses is referencing, even at the very beginning of passage, uh, the Lord says to Moses in, in uh, 33.1, I don't have this passage in there, he says, then the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, depart from here and the people who you've brought up from the land of Egypt. And, and I will give it the land. And so he's saying, like, you've told us to go. You've told us that there's going to be an angel that goes out in front of us. But I don't know who that is. I don't know where he is. I don't know who to look for. So I need you to say something to, to uh, give me your presence, to give me your promise. Moreover, he says, you've said I have known you by name, and I've also found favor in my sight. Now, if you have found favor, if I've found favor in your sight, he says, Let me know your ways that I might know you so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So the conversation that Moses has with God is still centered around the presence of God, but it goes deeper than this. Not just the presence of God, but the person and the character of God. Moses desires to know God deeper. He wants to know who God is. He wants to really experience this relationship with God. I can't imagine the temptation that Moses must have felt as he feels the power of God flowing through his veins, really. You you think about this for a second. Moses is a shepherd, he has this encounter with God as a burning bush. And the next thing he knows, he's standing in front of Pharaoh displaying these crazy, miraculous signs and wonders. He throws down his staff it becomes a snake. He grabs the snake it becomes a staff. He grabs a cup of water from the Nile and pours it out in its blood. He pours it back and it's water again. He does all of these things. God has demonstrated his absolute supernatural power through Moses. And I can assume and wonder that like all of us, Moses gets a taste of it and wants more. I can imagine what it must have felt like to to push your staff into the edge of the the sea and the water split. And so I can imagine in this moment, Moses' temptation was probably saying, "Oh, oh God, so you've given me your power. And the problem is, is Israel doesn't respect me. Your people don't respect me. They haven't seen your power demonstrated enough in me. I would guess, God, if you would just give me a little bit more power, give me the ability to do those kinds of things in my own choosing, they will respect me. They won't make golden images anymore. They won't do these things anymore. They will know that you are with me and that I have your power. But that's not what he asks for. Moses doesn't ask for more power. He asks to know God more. See, the commands of God are inseparable from the character of God. If you want to know Him, obey Him, and follow Him. I love what Moses prays. He says this, Let me know your ways that I might know you. Did you catch this? Moses says, If I know you, How you do things. If I see your law, if I know your ways, then I will know you. You think it would be the other way around. Maybe if we know him, we'll know his ways, and that's probably partly true. But I think Moses knows that he can comprehend and obey the instructions of God. And if he knows that, then he can really begin to know the Lord. And we do the same thing with our conversations with people. We ask them questions like, what do you do? What do you love? What are your hobbies? What's important to you? And these are the ways of those, that person. And when we learn the ways of them, what's important to them, the kind of rules that they live by, we begin to know them and understand them. We're beginning to engage with them. And so it's not too different with the Lord. Moses has a very limited set of instructions We have the entire scripture before us and Moses is literally the one responsible for writing the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He has none of that. And so what Moses has is very limited in the ways of the Lord. He says, God, I want more. I want to know your ways. I want to know your law. I want to know more about your covenant, who you are. Moses, with his very limited instructions, wants more Notice how King David alludes to this passage as he writes about the ways of the Lord in Psalm 25. He says this, the Lord is good and upright, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. I'll say this several times, he leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are faithfulness and truth and those who comply with his covenant and testimonies. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my wrongdoing, for it is great. And who is the person who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose. His soul will dwell in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. Here's where it ties in. And the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and they will make known to him his covenant. And his eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will rescue my feet from the net. Those who know the ways of the Lord will be rescued from temptation, from the pitfalls of idolatry like the people of Israel. And there's so much here tied to Exodus 33 and 34, but I love what he says in verse 14. It's the secret of the Lord. The secret of the Lord. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and they will make known to them his covenant, his ways, his law. I think too often we think about the secret of the Lord like a mystery that we can't unlock or we can't unfold or that we can't find. Like, again, it's an escape room. Have you ever done one of these? Like the room where they lock you in and you have an hour to to figure out. Those can be fun. With people who like follow instructions and think logically. A few years ago, uh, Levi uh, this is key information. A few years ago, right, like three years ago, Levi, my now 12-year-old, a few years ago, decided that this is what he wanted for his birthday party, to lock me and his older brother up with seven other nine-year-olds that tried to escape a room with hidden clues. It was like living in a land with a bunch of monkeys, Right? There, was, there was no organized and logical thought that happened for one second of that time. Me and Brody were trying to do all these clues and they were just going up to doorknobs and books, like unfolding them and just trying to rattle it loose for some reason, like it's going to unlock, you know, like we're going to jiggle this doorknob hard enough where the door is going to magically open. There's going to be a treasure on the other side, right? I think sometimes that's how we approach God. We just go from this thing to this thing, and we hear this book, and we see this author, and it's this new push, and like some hidden thing, Jim, and all this scripture. And really, that's not the way that we approach God or should approach God at all. It's literally that he has said, if you want to know me, look at my ways, look at my word, understand scripture, read it, I've given it to you. He's given us this, this path to know him, and Moses understands this. Moses says, God, I want to know you more, so show me your ways. Show me your truth. Understand that I want to know you, and through your laws, through your ways, I'll get there. I think sometimes we just go about from thing to thing, always wanting more in an easy way. But God has given it to us here. We think all the gimmicks are going to help us to get to know him better, but already he has given it to us. We learn the character of God through the commands of God. And David says, the secret to knowing God, to those who fear him, he will make known his covenant. That's it. Like Moses, we study scripture, we yield to it, we obey it. And when we do that, the heart of God is revealed to us in it. Notice this again, David writes in Psalm chapter one, verse one and two, he says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the way of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This is the blessed man. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses writes later on a on a more specific scale of this story. He says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him, to serve him, the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, watch this, which I'm commanding you today for your Moses understands this. Moses understands that when he understands the ways of the Lord, it's for his good. Psalm 95 speaks of this as well. Notice this, for 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. The Lord is speaking through the psalmist here, speaking of this moment. And they said that that they are a people who err in their heart. Why? Because they do not know my way. Therefore, I swore in anger, they shall certainly not enter my rest. So the Lord is also speaking here, and he's saying, those who do not know my ways, they're going to err in their heart, and they're going to suffer the consequences. I love this, what Jesus says, actually, in John chapter 14. He says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To keep commandments, we know commandments. We have to learn commandments. We have to learn the ways of Christ to keep the ways of Christ, right? And he says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And watch this, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Jesus is speaking the truth that Moses is asking for. He says, my ways, my commandments will be known to you. You obey them. And when you obey them, I will reveal myself to you. This is the pattern that God has set for us, that when we want to know him more, we know his ways. So God answers Moses for his request of his presence. In verse 14, he says this, and he said to Moses, my presence is, shall go with you, and I will give you rest. This is good news, but Moses hears a key word here that he's not sure about. He says, my presence will go with you. Moses wants clarification, and he says, you said my presence is going to go with you. Is that a plural you, like you, or is that you, Moses? Moses. And so then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is this not by your going with us so that we, all of us, your people, God, I and your people might might be distinguished from all other people who are upon the face of the earth? And so the Lord answers, graciously to Moses' request, and he says, I will do this thing which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. So Moses then doubles down, and he asks for another prayer. So far, Moses has asked a few big things, two big requests already. He says, God, I want to know you more. Show me your ways so that I can know you. Show me who you are through your law so that I can obey and understand you more. That's request number one. Request number two is that your presence wouldn't just be with me, God. I know I wasn't dancing around the golden calf. I didn't form and fashion that idol out of what you brought with us out of Egypt. The people were. Yet, God, I love them and you love them. And so if your presence isn't with us, I don't want to go either. Bold request. God grants both of those. And so then Moses goes for another. One more really bold request. And he says this, God, would you show me your glory? Moses gains the ear in the favor of God and he presses in deeper, show me your glory. I think glory is one of those words that we use in church and maybe in the South. Oh, glory. And most of us have no idea what it means. It's hard to define and understand, but Moses has prepared us for this word a few times so far already in Genesis and Exodus. Same term was used to describe Jacob's wealth in Genesis chapter 31 of Joseph's splendor in Egypt. After Joseph saves Egypt and in the part of the world from the famine, this same word is used to describe uh, Joseph's splendor. In the Exodus story, the glory of God was the visible manifestation of his presence. The glory of the Lord first appeared in the cloud to the Israelites, in the wilderness when the people grumbled. And the Moses and the Lord, and, and they asked for meat in Exodus chapter 16. In a similar form, the glory of the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. If you remember this, this is when Moses brought the people out to meet God. The mountain quaked, there was thunder, there was lightning, it shook. There was trumpets blowing, horns so loud that they couldn't hear. This word was used to describe that moment where God's presence was so real and heavy, that the people were scared nearly to death. So Moses has used this word from time to time, but here he asks that God would show him his glory. Think about this. Verse. The same word that Moses would use to describe that moment where it seemed to shake every single person in deathly fear, that same word at Mount Sinai, Moses says, would you show me that, God? Would you show me who you are and reveal yourself to me in that way? The the word here, it literally means heaviness, weight, or weightiness. God, would you show me? What a ridiculous request, really. God, would you let me feel all of your weight? Think about this. I mean, when we think, God, I want to know you more, I want to see you more, I think for us, we think that our minds are capable and our, and our, and our hearts and our souls are capable of, of seeing who God is. And yet, if we think about this in physical terms, God, who holds the world and universe in your hand, would you let me feel all of your way? Remember last week we talked about sin. We talked about the idea of us carrying these boulders of sin. Those are heavy. The glory of God is more. And so Moses is praying a prayer that God literally cannot give him. We'll see in a second. God will literally come back and says, Moses, you you can't, you don't know what you're asking, Moses. You have no idea that my glory would crush you. you, you're too sinful, I'm too righteous. If I were to hand you my glory, if I were to give you my glory, it would immediately kill you. It would crush you. I think, you know, there's a movie, Indiana Jones, I think, in the, I don't know which one, they're after the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this? You know, and They open the Ark of the Covenant or whatever, and the faces start melting off and all that kind of stuff. I would say that's like that's probably a, a very mild version. The weight of God he's praying for. Would you show me the full weight of who you are? One translation says, Lord, I want to see your very self, your own person. I want to encounter where I can fully experience you. God says to Moses, you can't, Moses. But he does answer him in verse 19. He says, I will make myself and all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, but Moses, you can't see my face for no one can see me and live. And then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me that you shall stand there in the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand and away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, this is really interesting. I think I mentioned this last week that we would cover this uh, because earlier in the chapter, the text says that Moses talked with God face to face like a man speaks to a friend. You guys remember this? He's in the tent of meeting. And when he goes there, this cloud descends there, Joshua stands by, all of Israel waits at their tents, and it says literally that Moses and God would talk face to face. And yet here, God says, Moses, you can't see my face. I would say the New Testament also uh, enlightens us even further. First Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 15, he says this, But he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. The scripture would affirm even this moment where God saying, Moses, you can't. John 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. God, uh, the only son who is in the arms of the father, he has explained him. So what do we do with passages like Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with an angel and called the name of the place God's face. Where he says, I've seen God's face and I have not been destroyed. Or Isaiah chapter 6, where it says, In the year that King Uzziah dies, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Or all the other Old Testament passages where people seem to see the Lord. I think the way to reconcile is discover those passages, uh, what is told to us, explained in the New Testament. And in those passages often, uh, there's a reference to an angel of the Lord meeting with someone. And then that person says, I have seen God face to face. I think it's difficult to reconcile, but here's what I believe. I believe that in this moment and many others, it's a a pre-incarnate representation of Christ. I believe as as Moses is speaking to God in the tent, I believe, this is my belief, Scripture does not give us clear uh, definitions here. I believe he's speaking to Jesus. And what's interesting, if you later read this passage, in the same uh, Exodus 34, After Moses has this encounter with God, his face shines. His face shines so much so that he has to cover it with a veil. Think about the similarities here as he goes up on top of a mountain, has this experience with God, and now his face shines. Later on in the Gospels, we see Jesus, who takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, We call it the Mount of Transfiguration, and the fullness of God's deity is shown to the disciples. Do you remember who's there? Moses and Elijah. I love this. I kind of think in this moment that as Moses is in the tent of meeting, think about this. This is maybe one of the most difficult moments of Moses' life. It's the kind of moment that keeps you up at night. Where Moses has led these people, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people, he has essentially made them homeless. Even though they were slaves in Egypt, he is responsible for bringing them out. And now God is saying, I'm not with you. That's a dilemma. So Moses goes into this tent. And what I believe is he meets with Jesus and Jesus comes comforts him, says, I'm still here. I'm still with you. You go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's it's this tipping point of Jesus's ministry. Jesus knows and understands that from now on, the crowds are not going to be coming to him, but are going to be pushing at him. And he goes up on this mountain, and there's someone there, Moses, who encourages him both Christ and Moses come down from that mountain shining. It says that Christ even his clothes were radiant. We see Moses speaking to someone he says is is a representation of God. I believe it's Christ. Because John uh, 14, Jesus says, of this a little bit and he says, Philip, one of the disciples, comes to him and says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you for such a long time and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. And then how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you do not speak on my own, but the Father, as he remains in me, does his work. I think this, this should shock us all back to And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This should shock us all into the concept that God himself, too weighty for any of us, would become flesh so that we can know him, so that we can see him. I think this is important The fullness of God is revealed in His Son, Jesus. The full glory of God is revealed in His Son, Jesus. If you want to know God, know His ways and know Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Spend time in the Gospels because when you see Jesus, You see God. Tell you what I've started to do in my devotional kind of personal walk. As I study other books of scripture, I'll study a book of scripture and then I'll go to one of the gospels. I'm looking at Jesus. I'll study a passage of scripture and then I'll go to the gospel, Jesus. I'll study some passages of scripture and then I'll go to another gospel, Jesus. I've just got to keep my eyes on Jesus. I would encourage you, man, if if you're getting weighted down by this world, if you're getting lost in Scripture, go back to the Gospels. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He shows us the Father. I love what A.W. Tozer, I quote him often. You know, he lacked even a high school education, but he read the great Christian uh, writers and theologians until he could read and write with them in um, and, and total um, just transparency and fluency and he says this he says come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God they mourned for him they prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night in season and out and when they had found him the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking Moses used the fact that he knew God as an argument for knowing him better. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I might know thee and that I might find grace in your sight. And from there he rose, making the darest request. Lord, show me your glory. Frankly, God was so pleased by this display. And the next day he called Moses into the mount and in solemn procession made his glory pass before him. It's because he earnestly desired to see and know the Lord. So, so God tells him that he's going to show him the lingering of his glory this word that uh, the Lord uses, I'm going to pass before you. Uh, it could literally, I'm going to, I'm going to linger before you. I'm going to show you the back side of me. He's going to proclaim his name to Moses also. So God calls Moses back up to the top of Mount Sinai. It's about a uh, seven thousand five hundred feet uh, climb. Today, uh, in in modern trails, it takes about three hours to do. Not carrying two stone tablets. So God commands Moses, he says, cut out two stone tablets just like I cut out for you before and be ready in the morning, Moses. So Moses apparently probably spent most of the night cutting out these two stone tablets and early in the morning begins his walk back up to Mount Sinai. Moses goes to the mountain and the Lord descends to him again. Exodus 34 verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and truth who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It's interesting what Moses came for and what Moses thought he wanted isn't what he got and isn't what the Lord said he needed. He wanted to see the glory of the Lord. And God honored that by giving him a self-pronounced description. He gave him words. Moses thought that he knew what he wanted. God knew what he needed. Now, of course, with the promise of God, Moses saw the passing of God's glory. The word, like I said, means lingering it changed him forever. It wasn't just what God allowed him to see, but what, were, what was revealed to him. Uh, notice a couple of things about this. Notice how God describes his character. He's proclaiming his name. Did you see that? He says, The Lord, the Lord God. And then he gives attributes of himself. In other words, God's name is associated with his character. This is important. God's name is associated with his character. God's character is associated with his ways. It's all connected. And so when God announces his name with his character, we're reminded that when we pray and when we speak these things uh, of, of request to God, we pray in the character of God. That's why when you pray in the name of Jesus, right, it's not like a sign out. It's not like the over and out good buddy, you know. This is saying, God, I'm praying in line with your character, who you are, what you've already done. I'm praying in the name of I think another thing to notice in this passage is what God didn't say. After the whole deal with the golden calf, he could have said, I am the Lord God, omnipotent, omniscient, strong, all-sufficient. But he didn't. All of those things would be true. But he didn't choose to remind Israel of those truths at that moment. That's not what he wanted to communicate about himself at that time. Instead, he says these words, I'm compassionate, merciful, slow to anger. I'm long-suffering, Moses. Moses, in case you forgot, in case you wondered, I can put up with you and Israel longer than anyone else on earth can. I'm abounding in faithfulness and truth. I forgive wrongdoings. This is incredible, Because God chooses to reveal himself to Israel in this way. I think just a quick note about the warning of judgment on the third and fourth generations. There's this part of this, it's it's almost as if, to be honest, uh, this would be uh, much more uh, postable if we could cut it off at the, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It would be really encouraging. And we could, you know, make a nice background image and post it up and probably get lots of likes because it makes us feel good. But there's another part of God's character that says he is just and has to judge the wicked. And then there's this part that he will visit the guilty up to uh, their children and grandchildren, their third and fourth generations. And so there's there's some, I believe, probably... um, some overanalyzation on this that would talk about generational sins have you ever heard of this generational sins I think that's become a popular term I, I don't really see the biblical framework for it here especially I think just because your father struggled with something does not mean that you have to it doesn't mean that you have to I think it doesn't mean that you have a chain of sin that you're destined to be tied to. It doesn't mean you have an excuse or you get to manage it because someone in your family did as well. I do see a biblical framework, though, for biblical consequences. Consequences that are felt from a father's sin to the third and fourth generation. I believe that this is what it's talking about. The context here is the idolatry and sin of Israel. They fashioned a golden calf. They danced around it. They took what God had given them out of Egypt and they molded it into this idol this was the big sin that the children of Israel kept falling into. This is the one that God would warn them as they go into other nations. Listen, when, when, when your sons take wives from these lands, they're going to try to bring their gods into your home. Don't do it. Don't serve them. Don't bow down to them. Nothing. This was the big sin. So if parents raise their children in an atmosphere of idolatry, they're setting that child up with the exposure to idolatry. It becomes idolatrous, and it's going to play out in the natural consequences because of sin and sins of the parents. So I believe in this moment, God is referring specifically to this idol worship where he says, you have defiled me and your land and my promise, and your children are going to feel the consequences of this. I will repay that sin over and over and over. You will wander the desert for 40 years. Your children will feel that. He says, I I cannot overlook it. Notice what Moses' response is to God's revelation about himself. Verse eight, and Moses hurried to bow low toward the ground and worship. And then he said, if if any way I've found favor in your sight, Lord, please may the Lord go along in our midst. He's begging him again. God, would you come with us? Even though the people are obstinate and pardon our wrongdoing and our sin and to take us as your own possession, Moses worships, confesses, and gives himself over to God's plan. In response to God revealing himself, Moses worships, he confesses, and he gives himself over to God's plan. I, I believe this is what we see over and over and over again through Scripture. An encounter with God demands our worship. An encounter with God demands our worship. Face down worship. Unopinionated worship. Zero preference worship. I love the, the quote, um, the story of Francis Chan. I guess he came out one Sunday after preaching and, um, you know, somebody from his church decided that they should tell him uh, that they didn't like one of the worship songs that that they sung. And he said, "Um, well, that's okay because we weren't singing to you. What a response. We weren't singing to you. How does your preference and how does your opinion affect your worship? I love what Moses does here. In response to God revealing himself, he literally puts his face on the ground and says, I'm not not worthy of any of this. I'm not worthy of any of this. Somehow, someway, we've convinced ourselves that when the conditions are right, when the lyrics are sung just how they were sung before, we haven't changed it, we haven't altered it. When we sing the song that we sung at camp when we were like a teenager and like, it really felt good then. That's when we worship. You know those songs, right? Like, maybe we have this moment, this place in our life, and maybe that's good, right? But it's as if, like, I'll be honest. This is this is <laughs> this is too much information. In, in college, I played on this worship team at Liberty, and we would have a church service like every you know, Wednesday night. And it became a joke, we were immature at the moment. Our, our guitar player had this pedal and he, he labeled it the worship pedal. This is how ridiculous it is. This is This is how easy our hearts are, right? Literally with tape on this pedal, it was the worship pedal. And he would look back, and he would wink, and he would hit it right, and it'd be like, just got louder. Music just got more intense, and it was like that's when we, that's when we worship. And I look back on that, and I, honestly, like I, my heart cringes because I was part of it. But also, it just reveals something about us, doesn't it? That if we manipulate it, if we like it, if it's good, if it's smooth, if it's all the things, then that's when we worship. That's what we call worship. it's, It's not worship. Because worship is when we get a clear view of God and we say, God, I'm not worthy of any of this. We sing these songs and it's true that you're for me. And not against me. It's true that you've forgiven me. God, they can turn they can turn everything off, or they can turn it up however they want to, but I'm just caught up in the fact that you have chosen to love me. That's worship. That's worship. When we look at God for who he is, our only response is worship. So God gives Moses uh, like the the whole law again. And it's interesting that Moses now has to write it and carve it in the stone. And I think to myself, how repetitious. But I think Moses must have been smiling the entire time he's writing. You know why? because with each sentence about the tassels on a priestly garment, he's thinking to himself, God's still with us. With each instruction about the law, he's saying, he hasn't left us. He soaks in the law, the covenant. He soaks in the promises of God. And as he learns who God is, he learns that he can trust him. I don't know if you've heard about a game, it's a game on the app store, or at least it was called um, Pocket God. It was one of the top selling video game apps um, for a while. And um, it, the, here's the description. It says, what kind of God would you be? Benevolent or vengeful? Play pocket guide and discover the answers within yourself. On a remote island, you're an all-powerful god that rules over the primitive islanders, and you can bring new life and then take it away just as quickly. And so seeing the game options include throwing islanders into volcanoes, using islanders as shark bait. Uh, You can bowl for islanders with a large rock if you want to. Create earthquakes, destroy islanders' villages. Um, Designers seem to think... That players will only want to play the role of a vengeful God. Probably because that's how we view him. But I want you to notice these words again. From God's own mouth, as he declares who he is, he says, I'm the Lord God. I'm compassionate. I'm compassionate to you, he says. I'm compassionate for your circumstance. I'm compassionate for the weight of your life right now. And I'm merciful. I'm merciful to you. God is not just merciful. He cannot be universally merciful without being specifically merciful. God is not just merciful in proclamation and not merciful to you. He is merciful to you. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in faithfulness and truth. He keeps faithfulness for thousands and he forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. He forgives us and he loves us. That's who he is. I don't have this passage uh, on the screen, but as Jesse comes out to lead us in response, I wanted to read a passage Uh, from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul says this, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this day at the very reading of the Old Covenant because the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil now lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So What Paul's saying here is Christ has given us the hope of glory here, writes, writes later. The actual presence of God's glory rests in us. Why? Because he's compassionate, and merciful, and slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness. He, he forgives wrongdoing, violations of the law, and of sin. This is who God is. This is what he says to you today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that in all the ways you could have told us who you are. You could have rebuked. You could have reminded Israel one more time of their sin. And yet you choose to remind them of your faithfulness, your compassion, your mercy, and your forgiveness. Lord, things that we in here desperately need from you today. And so, Lord, I pray for those in the room who want to know you. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself to them as Moses prayed also. Lord, for those in the room who have this uh, difficult and um, inaccurate view of you that you're a vengeful God waiting to smite us. Lord, I pray that you would wake them up to who you choose to reveal yourself to us as, Lord, this compassionate God. And I pray that we would worship in response, God. Lord, those who need to pray with you today, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to even walk towards the back And meet with someone who can pray with them and for them. Lord, I pray that you change us by this scripture today. And your name we pray.